You are now listening to the Claim It Podcast with me, your host, Trisha Huffman, your joyologist. I love to have conversations with people who intrigue and inspire me on this podcast. Real talk, we go through the journey of their lives. We're not just talking about the bright, shiny moments, but of course, we get to those. On today's episode, I am resharing this amazing conversation with Jody Patterson. This conversation has stuck with me ever since I had it. The episode went live in August of 2020. And um, I'm just so grateful still for Jody sitting down and talking with me. You have to read her book, The Bold World. And also, while we were recording this conversation, we talked about her book that was yet to come out, and it is out now. It is a children's book, but I think we all could use it. It is so beautiful. It is called Born Ready, The True Story of a Boy Named Penelope. And I know that really this book Jody's book, The Bold World, are so amazing for so many reasons. And her and her family like really shift something in my brain, especially for how we think of transgender people. Like I never really even thought about it much before, or I think there was because I didn't think about it, I was a little bit confused. And reading, you know, hearing about Penelope and this story was such a different change in in my mind and in my heart and again it was something I never really took much thought about and uh, I think it's something we do need to think about a little bit more so tune in for this whole episode go get born ready go get the bold world here we go hi we're here (laughs) hello So I like to start with like talking about how you grew up, but a lot of times even like high school years, because I feel like that's definitely like a time when, you know, we're trying to figure out our place in the world, like blend in, but stand out. And then like, you know, sort of can be either listening to our parents or going against them. So what was life like for you around high school years? So I grew up in New York City in the 70s, which... You know, Manhattan and New York in the 70s was quite different from New York 2020. Um, Neighborhoods were really defined. They had personalities that were distinct. And sometimes that distinction like ended from one block to the next. And so I lived on the Upper West. I was raised on the Upper West Side on 81st and Riverside. By the time you got to Amsterdam, Riverside was pretty posh. Amsterdam was um, where all the Dominicans lived. You know, at my block, we were the only black family, only black people. <laughs> and was that the next block? It's like, like three blocks away. Okay, yeah, three three blocks away. So on my on my on the block where we grew up, it was um, mostly white folks, upper upper middle class to upper class. What's his name from the um, Mick Jagger lived across the street from us. <laughs> What's no, his name? They- Big Jagger deal. lived across the street from us. He had a, he had a house across the street, and we, the black family, got more stairs than he did walking down the street. It's pretty funny. That's the, that's saying something. Right? That is saying something. I mean, but Mick then if you Jagger went two blocks, recognizable. But then the strange thing, if you went two blocks, it was predominantly, um, you know, Dominican and working class, and um, just a whole other vibe. So there was like almost sometimes block to block, 
but I would say that the Upper West Side had a sense of moral obligation. And although we were not, we were very mixed in terms of our ethnicities and our cultures and our languages and our religions um, and our skin colors, we at some point decided that we'd be a community. So we figured out ways to sort of coexist on the Upper West Side um, it, with, with our differences. Then if you go to the east side of Manhattan, like Fifth Avenue and Madison, it was very white and very rich and there weren't any, and I went to school over there, and there weren't very many black people, <laughs> I'd say, except for the folks that worked in the buildings and worked in the restaurants, um, and then a couple of us kids who were in the schools over there and some families that, that lived there. But I, I did feel growing up that I had many worlds. So Upper East Side, I was very, you know, I, I went into a white world every day and my neighborhood was very white. Uh, my family was an actively black family. So they raised us, no matter where we traversed, they raised us to have a lot of um, understanding of pride in and attachment to our black culture. So although we were the only blacks in our, in our neighborhood, my dad took us to play tennis every weekend at the public tennis courts in Harlem called the Jungle. Not a fancy tennis club. It was, you know, concrete courts in the middle of Harlem and it was called the Jungle. And you could like, it, you know, there were public courts so you would feel the vibes of everyone in the neighborhood. And we did that every weekend. So there was just, and we went to church up, uptown in Harlem, Abyssinian Baptist Church. We were encouraged to really flow in many different um, neighborhoods and communities. So a lot of my childhood was, I felt, I felt like it was a lot of move, movement in a good way, not movement like in a frantic way, but we moved a lot. We traveled a lot. We, our eyes were always open. We never were with our family feeling like this is boring. It was always like an adventure when um, my dad and my mom would take us out. I love that. And you mentioned like you at, had many homes or at feeling at home in many places. Is that too? Cause did you feel, can you remember being younger and like feeling at home? Like, yeah, you're going to a majority white school. And then on the weekends you're in Harlem with the black, mm -hmm. like, were you able to feel comfortable? Did that create any like internal? Cause like I said, I think me, even as a white girl that was going to a white Catholic school pri primarily, I was like, I was confused about who I was and where I belong in the world. <laughs> Yeah, like that's the that's the part of life that has nothing to do with race or class or exactly confusion of life. It's just a human a human experience. Totally. So then that's what I'm saying. Like feel me being that age, and then yeah, you're like I'm here, and then I'm here, and then I'm here. Like, did that create any inner confidence, or was it the yes, opposite? Yeah. Definitely, definitely inner confidence. So it it did not create conflict. It created confidence. And so we moved a lot. We and and every time we'd walk into a space, my dad would say, "Walk in like you own the joint." because you do. And it wasn't a sense of dominance, but it was more of a sense of you are, you are at home and you are welcomed and you should be in every part of this land. So when you walk into the space, you know, hold your, hold your head up. And so we practiced that every day, every day. I mean, my dad was a person who believed in self-determination and um, a lot of, you know, he had a, a lot of Harlem attitude in him. And, and he was wicked smart. So we just, you know, we, we would, we learned from a very early age, even when it feels kind of awkward, that first moment when you're walking some into some place that you don't know anyone, that you don't look to um, back down, you don't look for a corner, you go to the center of the room, you assess who's there, and then you start to um, interact with the people that are there. 
I remember one time we were in, my dad had moved to Boca Raton, Florida, and he joined this really <laughs> uptight um, country club. And I went to visit him. We were the only black people there except for the waiters, the staff. And um, I don't know, I, I guess I was feeling awkward. And so I started making like, tea, like making fun of the folks. Someone's toupee, someone's makeup. I was like cracking side jokes to my dad. And he looked at me and he said, you know, you're missing the entire point. You're joking because you're uncomfortable. But in this room, there are people with a lot of intelligence, a lot of access, a lot of information, and you're not even getting there. You're just making jokes about their, their hair and, and the way they look. So that kind of put me on the right track, that these moments of discomfort when we go into new spaces can tend to make us, can sometimes bring out the worst in us, but what we should be doing is paying attention to what's around us and seeing if it's of value to us, right? So. Yeah, no, I get that so often. It's like we're really like feeling, you know, doubtful of ourselves or feeling in fear, feeling like less than. And so then it makes us want to pick people apart or what? Look at them wearing that outfit or how much do they spend on that? Like, let me find something to try something. to not like them for because yeah. them being them is somehow like making me feel bad about myself or something. There's like, <laughs> Yeah. And I think also we, all, we also want to always have something to say in the right moment or mm. the fact, the fact that we don't have something to say in a moment is uncomfortable and we don't have to, like my dad just, you know, was teaching me that even at seven, eight, nine, ten, I can be in the room with um, heavy hitters, not need to say anything, just observe. You know, I can be a scholar and a scout for many, many years and take notes for many, many years. And that should not make me uncomfortable to the point where I'm now deflecting and making people feel, you know, make myself feel better and other people feel worse. So I learned that, you know, sometimes it's fine to sit back and observe. Um, you're no more or less in the in the space. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. I think it's true. And a lot of our conversation, I think, can be just like filler conversation for the fear <laughs> of not having an answer or not having something to say. We don't. We think we're going to look stupid or that we're not like aware if we don't have the answer. When it's like, oh, you can even say, I don't know, and that doesn't mean that like something's wrong about you. It means like, oh, okay, I'm open to listening. I would Absolutely. like to know. I would like to learn more, but we make it seem like it's a bad thing. Absolutely. And 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 many of us don't even, we don't use the decades um, in the beginning of our lives to observe. And we find ourselves in these moments, like right now, and we say, wait, what? There's this kind of racism going on? What? There's this kind of sexism? There's what, what does transgender mean? Because we haven't been taught to, uh, bless you, to take to pay attention, to look and observe and see things. There's so many gaps from between us and the rest of the world. And that was, um, even with my father who taught me to be observant, I still had these massive gaps. I didn't even see my own child who was trans, didn't know anything about his life in that sense, didn't know about the millions of trans people that existed. And so I had to go back to this, the teachings of my dad. Uh, he was teaching me about black pride and about being confident as a young black woman. But I used that when I had to raise my trans son. This idea that, you know, individuals are, 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 are able to determine who they are and then everyone around them has to just take them as they are. And then we have a group of people just taking each other as we are. That was something that my dad really laid into us when we were young. 
Right. So he was instilling that in you with the like taking it from a black pride as a black woman, mm-hmm. you walk into the room and this is like you are and stuff like that. And now you are now taking that lesson when yeah. learning on this path with your son. And I want to get more into that soon. So let's go back to you growing up and then like what did you feel like? Did you feel like, oh, I know what I want to do in my life or like, I know I want to go to college. Was going to college something that you do for your parents or because it's what's expected? I never, ever thought not to go to college. Never, ever, ever, ever did I ever think not to go to college. It was a shock to me when my own daughter said she wanted to put a pause on going to college. I thought, what has this world come to? Um, Of course, now I see it quite differently, but you know, 40, let's see, 30, 30 years ago, I had graduated from Convent of the Sacred Heart um, High School, all girls, and I was going to Spelman, an all-women's college in Atlanta, Georgia. It was um, one of the best decisions I've ever made to go to Spelman College, and I enjoyed every last second of it. But I didn't know what I wanted to do at all. In fact, many of the Spelman colleges are very, the women are very forward in their thinking. Um, and in their career path, they have it planned out on day one. These are not slackers in the least. These are like they're go-getters. like coming to freshman year, like with their twenty-year plan for life. For like, <laughs> <laughs> and here I am from New York City. Kind, I'm definitely not, not a Southern girl. I was, you know, I had Doc Martens on. I had some ripped-up T-shirt and some fake pearls, you know, like Madonna style, wrapped around my wrist. And I was just down for the experience, but they, you know, Spelman as a culture is very um, together. And so I was, I was a late bloomer and it took me a while to understand how heavy the moment was, like what we were actually experiencing at Spelman. Because, you know, it's the first time that many of us were around black professors, black administrators. Spelman is all black. It's, yeah, it's a historically black college. So you have, of course, it's not 100% there. Uh, folks that come from others, from outside of the black community, white folks and Asian women. Um, but oh, so they're permitted, but primarily that. And that is that even like teachers as well. It was majority. Yeah, black for sure. Wow. So, so HBCUs, historically black colleges and universities, were uh, founded because of the segregation that existed in in America. So our families could not go to the top colleges. We weren't allowed in. And so we started our own and um, Spelman was started by some black women. And then very soon after it originally launched, um, the Spelmans and the Rockefellers uh, took it over and funded it and it is and, and raised it up. Um, and I believe Spelman is, it's the top, is the or one of the top ranking HBCUs um, in our country. And just a side note, if you look at the black doctors in America and black judges and black CEOs, the majority of them come from HBCUs. <laughs> so we are, we really are um, a, a home for um, and a birthing ground for um, many of our top leaders. Wow. And it's because of this environment that many people think is just unrealistic, but it was, it's phenomenal. It's the first time you're around black professors, black administrators, the president of your school is black. Mine was a black woman, Janetta Cole your sisters, your roommates, your sorority um, women are all black women. And so that was groundbreaking for me. That sounds amazing. And it also, I feel like that has to be such like, I'm feeling like a lot of energy 
And maybe yeah. like, does that like then make you put like more pressure on yourself? Of, oh, like, no. well, what am I doing? Or you're just like a lot like, does it like make you just like full of alive and full of energy and inquisitive or? Well, you know, the interesting thing about like racism and sexism and genderism and transphobia is that it sucks up so much of your mental power. So your brain is literally trying to fight it or understand it. And so when I got to Spelman, that part of the brain or that part, I didn't have to worry about racism in, in the same way or sexism in right. the same way. So I actually became much a much better student. <laughs> Honestly, my brain was like, ah, oh, now I can learn uh, because I'm not thinking about what do I look like when I walk in? How do I sound to everyone? Right. Are they, thinking, are they questioning who I am? And those things are sometimes subconscious, but they still take a brain power. Yeah. So it was a, it was a, an opening of my brain. I accelerated as a student. I learned a lot more of activism. It was during the time of apartheid. I was in college in 92. So we were thinking about divesting in South Africa. We were like a part of the collective conversation around um, apartheid, anti-apartheid moves. And, you know, they were like, right next door was Morehouse, which is an all men's black, historically black college. And like, I'd never been around, you know, hundreds of black guys before my age. It was just, I have to say, one of the best experiences of my life. <laughs> and what did you end up then again, like you're saying everybody's showing up there on freshman day with their like, mm -hmm. they got their shit. Like, so then what was your journey like then? You know, you knew you were going to college, but you didn't know no, where you wanted to go with that. I just, all so. I knew was get, get to college. But I, you know, I've always been a writer in terms of um, just what I love to do. I was great at literature. I was always good in English class. I wrote really interesting essays. I failed in math. <laughs> I struggled through history. I struggled through Spanish. But English was always my favorite subject. And so I did that in, in college as well. I ended up majoring in uh, literature from the African diaspora. And that was, um, when I graduated, I um, listened to Dr. Maya Angelou give our, our um, graduation speech. And I knew that I wanted to do something with, with books, but I wasn't sure exactly. And I ended up going into publishing. I was a junior book editor uh, after I got out of college. And that was, you know, it, it wasn't like a, I, I didn't have a hard plan or a clear roadmap. I was just was following things that were interesting to me. So when I got out of college, I just thought, what do I like to do? Oh, I like books. I'll just apply to a, a publishing company. And at the time, it was when we had our, um, we looked in the newspaper for job openings, <laughs> like literally the, the paper. Yeah. <laughs> I sat at the table with the paper and I circled things and then I called people on the telephone on the, the dial phone, the phone? No, no. <laughs> yeah. Can you imagine these days it's like why are you calling me about a job <laughs> no yeah everything was, was automated so yeah I, I stumbled into publishing I mean it made sense in terms of my interests but I just sort of landed a job at this uh, company called Scholastic which was a children's publishing house oh right right yeah and I, I hated the job <laughs> But it was a first foot in. I took some classes in writing and then took another job in publishing at a smaller house, which I thought was a little bit more interesting, and then another smaller house. And then after a few years in publishing, I realized it, it really wasn't what I wanted to do. And I could read books and not necessarily be, in, as, be an editor. I could still love books, but not right. be an editor. And so I opted out um, of the publishing world 
only to find out that I'd come back full circle. As yeah. <laughs> yeah, I love that. But yeah, so and I read your book, and I definitely recommend everybody reading The Bold World. Um, but yeah, it sounded like you moved around through some different jobs. And mm-hmm. I found that to be inspiring. Because I feel like so often people like, let me take the job. I have a job. Okay, then let me maybe work up in this company or okay, go to like, yeah, it makes sense to go to different publishing companies if you're in that. But Mm -hmm. you did different things and moved around and maybe like veered off and on paths. (laughs) So what do you feel motivate? Like, yeah, like what was leading you to make those choices? Because a lot of people, like I said, don't do that. They just will stay still. Most people. have a trajectory planned out and they think, you know, and they, and they stick to it. They say five years here and then I'll move to a similar place, but like maybe one step up and five years there to really, you know, earn my stripes. And then I'll move with a real strategy, but I, that's just not me. Um, perhaps because I was raised by women across the board who do things differently. I mean, just across the board, there's nothing, uh, uh, typical about the way the women who raised me lived. Uh, my grandmother married five times and one man she married twice. <laughs> Love it. Um, she also was a, um, an activist and changed laws in America down South, sued school boards and hospitals and won the court cases during the South. So the women that raised me were very, were, um, were rebellious, I guess, in some ways they lived outside of the status quo. They pushed to change the status quo. They themselves moved around physically to different houses and, had very robust careers. And I just picked up some of that. I guess it was in my blood. No one told me to do it, but I've had 18 different homes in the last 25 years. And I think nine different careers in the last 25 years and not small careers. I mean, these are like, you know, things that I really enjoyed doing nine, nine different times. So I just followed my interest. And if I felt fell out of interest and I had a new interest, I followed the new interest. Looking back, they were all connected. So I went from book publishing as a junior editor to music. I worked with some musicians like D'Angelo. Um, then I went into PR, because by that time I, I had accumulated a great Rolodex of people. Um, opened my own PR firm, and then my like, husband Like, no big time, deal. I just opened it, my own PR firm. Like that's <laughs> I don't know. It didn't feel like a big deal. It felt like a lot of sleepless nights and hustling yeah. while I was nursing and landing a few clients and working my ass off. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> that and that's what I'm saying. Deal. Like, no big deal. Yeah. Like, yeah, you're working for it. But like, that's even more like, yeah, you have a new baby or ner- like there's uh, things on the line as well. Like not just like, oh, I don't have anything to worry about. And I just live off of so-and-so's money and I can just do whatever I want. Like oh, your life yeah. was, that's what I'm saying. Like big choices. So you worked your ass off to make super, things happen. Super hardworking. Yeah. I, I will. I, there were many years in my life where I could just go on like two, three, four hours of sleep for years. Can't do that anymore. But I think at the time, you know, social media, we didn't have social media then. And so you could have, I could carve out a niche. So like I didn't, I wasn't a massive PR firm, but I could get the smaller version. I could get the, the, um, Sean John sport version. I couldn't get like, you know, Puffy's big line, but I could get a piece of that smaller offset of his, his brand. I don't know. It was weird. Because, you know, you're not competing against these social media machines that elevate everyone's voice. So wherever your little community was, you could form some businesses in those communities. So I happened to have a downtown 
New York scene that I was a part of, and that became my community base for my work. So I had really interesting clients like Puffy's Sean John label, um, Lincoln Center had an African film festival, Nike gave me some business. It was just a uh, Sadella Marley, Bob Marley's daughter hired me, she had a clothing line. It was a lot of fun work that went into it. And then that, that. you though, putting yourself out there though, like, hi, I'm doing PR now. You need me. Like, yeah, this is what I do. Like what, and even like, you know, like, what do you think is that just your upbringing to with like the gumption to just, I'm going to do this. And now I'm going to tell you, listen to me. I got you. <laughs> I look back sometimes <laughs> and I, I see, I, I'll take, I'll look at a picture in my photo album and I'll go like, I can't believe I actually, <laughs> you know, did that without knowing the, what it was, what, it, how much it weighed, you know, you just kind of do it and you don't go like, Oh, that was kind of interesting. Like one night we, I started a non-for-profit with my girlfriend from high school and we called it Lion's Reach. And one night we pulled together Amir, the drummer from The Roots, the saxophone player from Sade's group, Matthewman, Stuart Matthewman, um, Amel LaRue, who's a singer, um, Roy Hargrove, who's a legendary jazz musician. We pulled them all together on stage for our uh, fundraiser. We were just like, hey, do you guys want to, be in a band. I know you're not, you're great musicians, but do you want to be in a band tonight and raise some money and do some good stuff? And we did it. Tonight. <laughs> yeah, tonight. And Jay-Z was there. And it was just, it was a really interesting, looking back on it, I, you know, I, I did not know at the time the weight of the event and the weight of what we had pulled off. But at the time, it didn't matter. We just had ideas and, you know, gathered the people. And I try sometimes now at 50 to still think in that mode, like, what is the idea you have? Like, what idea do you have? And then I try to gather the people to make that idea happen. I think a lot of times we're thinking about how can I personally do it on my own? But the way I think is how can I gather the people and make this happen? It's yeah. still my idea, but I, but I need a little help, <laughs> a little community. Yeah, for sure. I think that's a great way of looking at it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then, yeah, I'm like trying to remember stuff from a book. Like, yeah, then you worked for a major magazine, right? You worked for Zach Posen. You started your own boutique. Is that right? Like, these are some. I I had a lot of energy. I mean, and, and also a lot of luck. Like I, I landed a job with Zach Posen because I had a lot of friends in the fashion industry. Um, I landed a job at a magazine called Vibe. I, you know, then when, but then when those didn't feel right, I left and I, and I said, okay, I want to open up my own beauty store. And I did that somehow. (laughs) That was the one that I really put some, some like 360 sweat. Like, I mean, we had to raise our own money. We had to create our own um, marketing plan and our own budget. And we, you know, shopped it around to potential investors. And then we had to build the shop. And then we had to run the shop <laughs> and then we had to, you know, clean up the mess at night. I mean, it was a top to bottom project that myself and my partner did. Probably one of the biggest undertakings I've ever done running a retail store. And then the economy crashed <laughs> and we packed that one up, we went digital. But what do you feel like, you know, like that's that, like that um, transition is definitely a big one. I feel like, you know, was that what was the it retail for, to digital or, or just from Zach Posen or, you know, oh. working then to like, I'm going to start my own whole like business. No, actually not. No, 
No, because Zach, okay, so Zach Posen is, I mean, I guess the world knows him as a super brand, but, or a super, you know, influencer and a celebrity, but the way his company was run was like almost from the most passionate place of a startup. So it was his mother, his father, his sister, and himself that started in their house, in their apartment. And then it grew in terms of numbers of people and employees, but it still had that sensibility that if it's something that we want, we do it. So the mom and the father and the sister and Zach, they were all there. Got it. So you're like working in that environment and being a part of their passion, then it's making you like, is that what then is what? If you hadn't worked for him, likely you may have never launched your... Uh, I would say this. I would say I was around a lot of entrepreneurs from from the beginning of my life. My parents were entrepreneurs. My mother started a school. My father started a magazine the businesses that I had worked under felt entrepreneurial in spirit. Zach Posen for sure felt that way. Um, So I was watching for the first 20 years of my life, entrepreneurs and people who had big ideas and brought them to fruition. So by the time I was in my thirties, I had seen it. I had, I knew it intrinsically and I was ready to do it on my own. So it wasn't just one example. Zach was just one of many examples. Got it. Even work, working near Puffy, I mean, I don't know him well at all, but he was Zach's business partner at the time. He was um, the main investor in Zach's business. And so Zach Posen and P. Diddy are both entrepreneurial, but they do it in two different ways. I mean, very different personality uh, personas, both big, but you know, one posh and one sort of like Harlem swag. And I watched them. I watched a lot of folks. And then by the time I was in my 30s, I was like, okay, I'm ready to do it all on my own now. Got it. And that, you know, at that time too, you had how many kids? Because that's also like, you know, in one hand, I feel like, okay, I'm going to build something for myself. I'm going to do this on my own. But then there's also more risk of yeah. I am supporting a family. So were there, did you have to fight any doubts and fears that mm-hmm. like what almost stopped you from doing it and what made you then let me do this thing that's speaking to me, this passion? What almost stopped me? Well, I was, I was in a relationship. My Joe was, was, he had a great job in, in banking. So it wasn't the finances of it. It was, I didn't own the finances. He, it, they were, it was his money, but I didn't think, okay, I have to keep a nine to five because there's no way I can lose that paycheck. I was able to work an entrepreneurial startup job and take home very little money. Sometimes, most times taking home no money for many months. Got so that was, that was a bit of, a, of, of a, coming from a place of privilege. Um, but that's just one hurdle. So the right. other hurdles were like, you know, do I really want to stay up all night long working out this business plan? Do I want to stay up the next night practicing the pitch? Do I want to embarrass myself in front of the first five folks stumbling over my words so that I can get to the sixth you know, pitch and make it a little bit better in the seventh pitch. So there are a lot of like emotional hurdles that at 30, many of us would say, F that, I'm not, I'm not down for it at 30, you know. I don't want to embarrass myself. I don't want to stay up all night learning a language I've never used before in my life. I don't want to, um, you know, just grind yeah. for zero dollars <laughs> because that's what it is. It's like no money in the beginning. So those were the, mo- those were the hurdles um, and they didn't stop me. I was very determined to do it. Um, but they were very big hurdles, I'd have to say. 
Trisha here, bringing you a brief interruption to tell you about some of the ways besides this podcast that I am here to support you. The biggest way is I offer coaching. I do one-on-one in-depth coaching, meaning we are in conversation pretty much every day. Don't worry. Most of it is via text, voice notes, that sort of thing. Plus, we have one-hour weekly calls. But that's how we create true transformation. I'm with you every step of the way. I'm also so excited to open up my group coaching program. It's an intimate group. It's 12 weeks long and it's called Connected. Each week in this group, we have one focus that we work on. We have video calls. We have a special Voxer voice memo and texting group that we talk every single day in again so that you are actually pulled into the work so even if you miss the calls you are in the work and getting these daily small assignments on what to start thinking about and focusing on based on the focus of that week we have implementation sessions to call you into doing the journal prompts and the exploration of that week there is so much support i did it for the first time at the end of last year and the messages i've been getting from it are so amazing Here's a little bit. The Connected program provided such a safe and supportive space throughout the 12 weeks, even for a person who does not like to share. And before this program really struggled with naming and acknowledging my emotions, this group really provided the space to do that and so much more. People are saying that months later, they are still uncovering things and working on topics that they covered. And like, It's not something like they're actively like, I need to work on this because of the roots and the systems that we put into gear in the 12 weeks that they are being so much more mindful in their lives, intentional, and so much more connected to themselves. Go check it out, yourjoyologist.com backslash connected. If you want information on my one-on-one work, go to yourjoyologist.com backslash coaching. And if you aren't there yet, Definitely get my daily inspiration app. It's only $3.99, one-time purchase, no ads, no upgrades. You can get it in your app stores, and it's hundreds of powerful thoughts and affirmations to empower you, to get you thinking differently. And you can set a daily reminder time in the app so that you remember to go and pull a card and see what shift you will get. And of course, I have a product line. Go to shop.yourdrialogist.com and get a keychain, a magnet, a mug, a daily connection journal. Own your awesome physical card deck. So many items. You can find everything at yourdrialogist.com. And also, if you're interested in coaching, whether it's the group coaching or the one-on-one, feel free to DM me at underscore Trisha Huffman, and I am happy to chat with you about the options. All right, let's get back to the episode. I guess let's go ahead and talk about family life. (laughs) Well, that's when the family got complicated. Yeah. You know, so I had this store. It was in the heart of downtown Manhattan. And I was a mom of five. So I had a new store. Opened at like, you know, maybe 10 in the morning and then went, it closed at midnight. And I had five children. Some of them were really young. Some of them were high school age. Um, And I had a relatively new relationship. I was on my second marriage at the time. And uh, that was a big, that was a big old, <laughs> complicated, beautiful mess in that, in this sense. Um, you know, it felt, it's, looking back, it was like a whirlwind. 
I'm not sure what day was, I can't pinpoint certain moments in it. Sometimes I can't even remember dates. A lot of stuff was happening in terms of like, just keeping the ball, the balls in action for the family. You know, five kids, school, doctors, learning disabilities, um, broken legs, you know, step parents, blended family. One kid was um, adopted, you know, getting to know his, his biological mom and she getting to know me. And we just had so much stuff coming at us. And at the same time, trying to keep my own identity with my work. I don't know. I think I did a lot of work on adrenaline then. Yeah. And do you feel like, too, that's what having five kids, you know, is what made you open your business and have your work? Is that part of like what helped you keep your identity? Yes. So I I opened this store because I wanted to have something that I didn't, that was mine, that I could have my kids come to. They could come see me at work. And if I needed to, I could nurse a baby at the store, which I did a lot. You know, when I was working for Zach, I couldn't do any of that. It's right. like fashion. You just yeah. like, you're Your kids not are not going to come babies. visit the office. Yeah. <laughs> no, you're just supposed to like magically appear right, and be ready and look fabulous. Um, so the whole reason why I started this beauty company was because I, I felt so attached to my daughter and attached to my children. And I wanted them to be able to see me in action in my own store. I had this very romantic view of it. You know, we'd, we'd, be, we'd be together in the boutique and the community would know us. And a fraction of the time was like that. And the rest was chaotic. And so what drove me to really succumb to like exhaustion and sometimes depression was the fact that it was nonstop. The store was nonstop. The bills were nonstop. The economy was plummeting. And, you know, the worst is when, I tell you what's really hard, like you have a store and you can't keep anything on the shelves. You don't have the money for inventory, right? So there was a, there was a visible sign of the deterioration of the business. You couldn't hide in like social media. Like let's say you have an online store, it looks beautiful. But a, a brick and mortar store, if you can't purchase inventory, it's pathetic. Yeah. <laughs> so there was like the deterioration of the business, which was very visible. And my family started getting more complicated. My third child was acting out um, at around two years old, first two and then into the third year. We couldn't figure out why. She was just crying. My child is named Penelope and Penelope was crying and screaming and refusing to get dressed, refusing to brush teeth, throwing dolls at us, throwing dresses at us insisting that we cut Penelope's hair short like Papa's, uh, nightmares, reoccurring nightmares every night. Just a lot of darkness and sadness. And we couldn't figure out what it was. We just really couldn't. We, we tried like, okay, maybe Penelope needs more love, more story time, more reassurance. Um, I thought maybe it was a dairy allergy. It's like, take out the dairy. And so we cut hair. We cut Penelope's hair. Penelope asked. Penelope wanted to wear jeans. We bought jeans, but it just wasn't like quite getting there I think to the, like to the root of the issue. And then one day on Penelope, right before Penelope's third birthday, I just said like, well, what's, what's really wrong? Why are you so angry? Why are you so sad? And Penelope was like, oh, mama, because everyone thinks I'm a girl and I'm not. I'm a boy. So that was, that, that was, that, that day redirected my life and his life and the family's life. We never, <laughs> thank goodness, we never went backwards from that point, we went forwards. 
Yeah. And I can't you know, now, imagine. Now, years later, I, yeah. Go, go ahead. I was just, I was just going to say not to leave everyone hanging, but years later, I understand my kid to be transgender. At the time, I just, in those, in that moment when, when Penelope said, I'm not a girl, I'm a boy, I thought, here's a little girl who just doesn't want to be a girl. Like, how sad is that? Because I love being a woman. I thought it was a sad, sad state. Right. And that's, there's two brothers, right, that are closer in age. So then, it, yeah, it could be easy to make up. Well, that just means she likes boy stuff or she yeah. wants to be like a tomboy right. and stuff. And so then, yeah, like working through, no, Penelope says... She is a boy. I am a boy. Yeah, like, yeah the pronouns there. <laughs> going <laughs> and from... it's like, you know, and it was as clear as that. I mean, Penelope was very clear. I was still un- unclear, but Penelope kept saying over and over again, Mama, I don't, I love you, but I don't want to be you. I want to be Papa. I don't want tomorrow to come because tomorrow I'll look like you. My body will mm. look like yours. And it was very clear and not prompted. And people always want to know, what, what, you know, did you prompt that? And I, not no way in hell did I prompt anything. My mouth was open and my heart was open and I just was tearing up. I, I tear up sometimes now and I think about the moment because Penelope really was coming in such peace and telling me the deepest, deepest parts of his psyche and his heart that no one else had heard because no one else had asked. We hadn't cleared the space for Penelope to really speak up like that. And so, so much of the, of that, hour or two when we were speaking was um just Penelope talking <laughs> me just listening and that's at Penelope age did not want three to be. yeah just about three very verbal kid yeah wow I have my um my youngest just turned three so it's also like imagining like oh imagining like arrow but yeah I mean arrow, arrow talks a lot and she she knows what she's doing and she knows what she's saying um, yeah, so we don't think that the kids know much about their identity. And a lot of people have said like, you know, maybe Penelope was just imagining, um, using imagination and maybe Penelope was, you know, just because Penelope wants to be a boy in that moment, why would you ever just go with that? And of course it was not, um, a quick decision to support. And it had been those three years. And if any, any parent knows a year of disruption feels like a lifetime. We did three years with a kid who just cried and screamed and insisted on wearing brother's clothing, insisted on only standing next to Papa, insisted on imitating all the boys in the house. I mean, if big brother stumbled and hurt his knee, Penelope would be hobbling around all day. Knee hurt, mama, knee hurt. So it was like this intense monkey see monkey do dance but honestly penelope was trying to get was trying wanted someone to raise him as a boy no one was so he was going to find it himself and it was it was um once i said sure and yes i trust you and believe you in that moment he relaxed and said okay thank you and it became a lot easier yeah i love again your book everybody needs to read the whole book because you also talk about this whole experience and it's so beautiful and i feel like also educational because honestly i don't think i really ever thought about transgender and yeah. what that means or what age you become 
I, and, and this is, I feel like going to sound terrible, but I feel like my mind, when you said transgender, would imagine like a, a drag queen or a crossdresser. Right. So our like, I'm not saying that, that to be, you know, like I, in reading your book was like, wow, Penelope yeah. saying, I'm, people keep thinking I'm a girl. I'm a boy at age three. And what, like, it just woke me up to how much we don't know as a society. I didn't have the language. You're right. I did not have an understanding of it. For me, I was thinking of some of the documentaries I'd seen of, you know, kids on the west side of Manhattan, which is like, you know, the gay section of town. And there's a documentary called um, Paris is Burning. And it has, it's beautifully done, but it's also sad that many of the teens died in the end of the story um, or murdered or just hard lives. And so when I heard Penelope say, I'm a boy, that my mind went there to this sad documentary. My mind went to Silence of the Lambs where the psychopath is standing in front of the mirror, wiggling, naked, tucking his penis. I went to all the perverted, dangerous images that the media has given me around nonconformity. Yeah. So like when you're seeing those movies, you're not sh sure you're, what you're seeing, but you're seeing something that has to do with sexuality, something that has to do with poverty, something that has to do with mental illness, something that has to do with criminality. And they clump them all together to make you think that anyone who's different is a psychopath, is a criminal, is a, a doomed person in society. And so my mind went to, oh my gosh, my, my child is doomed. I'm doomed. The family's doomed. Um, it was a knee jerk reaction. And so I had to spend months backing my way out of that and bringing new stories, new language to my family so that we can understand who Penelope was. We're not talking drag queen. <laughs> We're definitely no, not talking totally. drag queen. No, no, I was like, I didn't even want to say, but I think that I'm guessing if that's where my mind love. went to unconsciously, then that's where a lot of people's minds are going. Love a, love a, love a great drag queen. Penelope, yeah. Penelope uh, is, is not that, was not that. Um, Penelope is, so Penelope's now 12. He just graduated valedictorian from his school. Wow. He's an A student. He's um, a karate athlete and a basketball player. He's probably one of the most collaborative siblings and friends. Um, he's a really great kid. He's not, definitely not dangerous. <laughs> Society. Oh, well, man. So this is, that's, you know, a lot to go through personally. Okay, this. Okay, now. This is mm -hmm. okay. This is my son and that, but then that you put yourself out there. And I'm so grateful that you are sharing your story. Cause like I said, you're, I honestly, I read your book, not even, I just like memoirs. Like I just yeah. was like, this is a, Oh, people talk about this. I didn't know anything. <laughs> <laughs> so I wasn't like, let me read this book about yeah. someone like, you know? And so I was yeah. like, Oh my God, everybody needs to read this book. I just read it. Cause I like reading people's people's stories, but this just changed my whole way of thinking about something I didn't even think about. It was, you know, like an, it, a question mark in my mind that I didn't even know about. And so what made you feel like, let me step in and share about this and work to transform people's thoughts on this. And now you guys have a kid's book coming out, yeah. which I've already pre-ordered. We're going to have a link to that. <laughs> Thank you. I wanted to tell this, well, I want, I'm a writer by nature. I'm always noting and jotting and I have stacks and stacks of moleskin books and I have thousands and thousands of notes in my iPhone. Um, and so I was kind of like bubbling to write something 
didn't quite know what it was. I had one idea on moms and another idea on entrepreneurs and one idea on home decor, one idea on my family. I shared it again with some friends, right? So this idea of like opening it up to your community. And they said, that's the story, that one right there, that one about anchored in Penelope, but really about who you are as a family. And it was, again, a series of people that gave, that gave me more thought. My agent said, but how did you get to the point where you as a person would say, yes, Penelope, I support you. Like who raised you? Right. What kind of person are you that could really support something that she didn't know anything of? So my agent encouraged me to look deeper into who I was. So not to tell Penelope's story, not to tell just the story of, you know, 2015, right? Or 14 when it was really difficult, but to go back down South, turn of the century, great, great grandmother, black woman, all the way up to my grandmother, my mother, my uncle, who's Gil Scott Heron, who wrote The Revolution Would Not Be Televised, my mother, my father, who raised us in Manhattan, but gave us Southern roots. And then the story of Penelope, who, who really represents so much, so many of the people in my family. Right. Penelope is very similar to his grandmother and his uncle and his grandfather, right? all these, all these change makers. So I wanted to tell the story because I'm not so far away from the place where I didn't understand. I, I'll never go back there, but I still remember it. I can still taste it where I was totally confused. And I wanted to share that with other people who might be late in life, like me, 50, <laughs> who want to be better, right? It's like the word better sounds so good, but where do I start? Right. So not, these aren't, these are small incremental shifts that happen every day. And then five years later, you notice you, you're living a better life. And that was what I wanted to convey. It's not like a diversity and inclusion class. <laughs> and then all of a sudden you're better. It's these little steps every day. So I was hoping to share the little steps with the, with the, with the 500 page <laughs> memoir that I wrote. I love it. I love steps. it. I love it so much. And then, yeah, like how then sharing like your family now and your family's story with the world, which like I said, I believe is going to create, is creating and going to create so much transformation in people thinking differently, looking at things differently. But I'm guessing that also comes with its own struggles or no, like, you know, do you have to weigh yeah. with even taking every opportunity to talk about it, writing, you know, sharing the story in the book and like the talking with Penelope, how does Penelope feel about? The struggle is more so that I've got five kids and the world, you know, the, the media attention, the language, Penelope's name gets said a thousand times a day. To me, Penelope represent is just a word that represents us and represents change or represents love. But I get it. The world sees, not the world, it's not like the world knows me, but <laughs> the public sees Penelope as the, the crux of the story. And so the questions are around Penelope, the interviews, the television, you know, news clips are around Penelope. And I would never steer that away because the world needs to have more trans, black trans visibility. However, as a mom, I'm running a ship of five kids and everyone has to feel seen and everyone yeah. has to uh, understand that, you know, we're part of this team together. And so the challenge for me has been to show up for my, all of my children, like in like 100%, right? And that's a challenge <laughs> to show up 100% times five. Um, 
And then also to, to redirect the conversation. It's not about one person. This is about uh, how we can shift, how we can be mentally flexible, how we can be with the ones we love, and how diverse groups, call it a family, call it a board, call it an office, but how diverse groups of people can coexist. So I've, I've now shifted it. It, is, it, it moves, it started within my family, but I think mothering with a capital M goes beyond the family. I'd like to see us mothering in our boardrooms, mothering yeah. in politics, mothering the land, sort of architecturally building our communities. Yeah, I That's love I love that. What are your, how are you, how do you, how do you work to show up to do that each day? Well, you know, I'm, uh, it's definitely not perfect. And I've heard from one or two of my kids, all you know is transgender mom. You don't know anything about math or science, <laughs> which is quite true. I mean, I don't know a lot about math and science, right? Um, well, How kids, I, I would it? like I mean, to I, tell your kids there's also a lot of parents that don't know about math. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I try to, so I have this thing called the lab and we, we talk things out in long form. We lab out big ideas uh, with the goal of not agreeing at the end. The goal is just to have discussed it with decorum. Mm. So we don't agree on gender. Some of the kids, one kid in particular doesn't think that transgender realities exist. Mm. Um, the same kid does not think that God exists. He's mm. an atheist. So we have big, robust, long hour, hour and a half long conversations where we just talk it out. We don't actually try. It's not a proving the point. It's just a talking out the big concepts. Um, and these are really robust conversations because the topics are sensitive. You know, does, does, do transgender people really exist? <laughs> and he has a brother who is trans. Um, Wow. And so we have learned that, well, we've learned communication. We are learning communication. We're learning not to get rattled by differences. Uh, and we're learning that, that, that the goal isn't to agree. And that gives everyone a voice in the, cl in the house. That's so fucking good. I mean, when, when you do the labs, is that one-on-one -on -one or like no. all together? Oh no, everybody. And like, so now if, if every like if, if there's any tension and I'm starting to get pissed off, everybody has to come to the, the living room. We all have to sit on the floor <laughs> and I call it, you know, I call a session in and nobody gets up. We sit there for, until the kids get so bored. They've talked about <laughs> for two hours and they go like, you guys just want to go play basketball. Like, this is boring. And they've talked it out where the big issue is now no big deal. Yeah. I mean, I grew up in a house where it was a lot of shut up and like, I don't, <laughs> wow. I didn't feel heard or understood oh. ever. And like, I just would want to be like, even if I did something and got in trouble or like did something I wasn't supposed to, like That's I would rough. just want to be like, well, I want to tell you why I did it. Like not trying to get out of the punishment or anything. But I just always really felt this urge to be heard. And, mm -hmm. and I didn't get that. So I personally like believe, you know, like just being heard, you I don't need anybody to agree with me. Like back then I didn't need anybody to agree with me. I just wanted to be heard. So what you're doing is huge. And I think all parents, humans, it's like, yeah, whatever it is, like you don't even, it's just like allowing a person to have a voice, even if you don't agree at all on what they're saying, like, and just by them saying it out loud sometimes can change how they feel about it. You know, like yeah. sometimes we just get so passionate and locked up in our opinions. And then you just even saying it out loud changes the energy of it. Where did you grow up? 
Cincinnati, Ohio. Yeah, that's that's really tough to. Um, I hope that, and it, you know, and I still say would say that my kids say they that I don't understand them, right? I, I'm sure they think of that. Of course, I'm mean, like oh, that's. What I was like, yeah, but like when you talk, when you just talked about not being heard, I half of the drive to do so much for my kids is because I remember that feeling too when I was a kid of like just the shitty things that happened or like the lack of communication, lack of trust or support. And I just, I remember like it was yesterday and I want to be different for that, for that, for that yesterday feeling. Yeah. Like so I, I can flash, I can flash yeah. to like being in a kitchen being like, I just want to shut up. I bet I shut up. Uh, like, <laughs> All right. So I ask everybody to pick these are, phrases from my product line that go on keychains and I ask everybody <laughs> to pick which phrase not necessarily like, like the most but which one they feel they need as a reminder in their life right now and why because I will send you the keychain <laughs> these are so good um okay so I really like so fucking grateful for some reason fuck really just gets me going um <laughs> and let that shit go <laughs> All right. Why are you feeling those? So fucking grateful just has so much energy to it. And sometimes I wake up and I'm, or I look out and I'm so fucking grateful. Um, to drop to my knees, grateful to tears, grateful to, you know, goofy dance in front of my kids out of the blue, grateful, just so fucking grateful. Sometimes I look I feel it. I actually, I'm at, at the age of 50. I actually can see the blessings. I can see the great things. The bad shit doesn't override, even though there's a lot of bad shit. <laughs> I don't know. At 50, I'm actually grateful for, you know, fill in the blank, thousands and thousands of things and let that shit go because that I have to learn that. And that's very difficult for women, very difficult for moms to not only let the tough stuff roll off your shoulders, but also to let the things go that are great things. So there are so many things that we anchor to or anchor or become anchors for, like children, we're the anchors for the children. We anchor to our spouses. We anchor to morals, mm. families. This is how we define and judge women, right? How strong are they in attachment to other things? And I w wasn't until my 50s that I learned, like, you're not going to be a good leader. You're not going to be good at your great at your job or great at mothering or great at anything until you learn to detach go far far away from everything all the things that are, that matter to you go far far away five minutes or five days you choose but that muscle of detaching mm -hmm. what happens when you detach when you let that shit go is you um you do things with a new muscle so when my kids go to their dad's house for a month or two weeks I don't make dinner sometimes, or I'll try a new recipe. Um, I, instead of reading an entire book, I'll skim through books, <laughs> which feels really rebellious. I'll have sex <laughs> on the kitchen table. I've said this over and over again. Like I do things that are outside of what a mom or 50-year-old woman does. And the brain works that way. So if you do things out of, out of the way you habitually do them, you develop a new muscle. So if you normally get out of the bed with the right foot, and then you practice getting out with the left foot. It actually has been known to develop more brain density. Wow. Working new muscles. So when you let that shit go and you try new environments and new things and new rhythms, you come back, when you come back to the things that you love, 
with better vision, clarity, new muscles, new skill sets. So I just love that idea of letting that shit go for, you know, a little bit of time. Love that. Uh, Okay. What does it go to to raise your joy levels? Running. I like to run in Brooklyn. I listen to Drake and I run for a couple of miles by myself, headphones on. That gets me joy. Love it. Okay. Ask everybody to apply this phrase to their own life. What is easiest for you is not always what is best for you. So what is easiest for me is to do blank. What is best for me is to. Okay. Um, What is easiest for me is to go fast and furious. And what is best for me is to drink water every day, (laughs) take, go to bed early every night, spend less time thinking about what I'm going to do to change something (laughs) and just be in the moment and experience what is. Um, It is, it is best for me to slow down. Yes. All right. Easy for me to speed ahead. The last thing is the name of the podcast is Claim It because I feel that our feelings of enoughness, being successful, fulfilled, worthy, whatever it is, aren't out there somewhere once I do Mm -hmm. this, have this, whatever, then I'll feel it. We'll just keep chasing it. That we have to claim it for ourselves every single day. Claim your joy, your worth, your value, sometimes every moment Mm -hmm. of the day. So what are you claiming for yourself right now? I am claiming life outside of the city. I'm claiming life in a rural space with water and moss. I'm claiming frogs and, and, and what are those things that make those really loud grasshoppers? <laughs> um, yeah, I'm claiming rural, rural life right now. And I'm All such right. a city person. It's I was about to say, but... yeah, I'm like, it sounds like you've grown up in the <laughs> I city. Just, I've grown up in the city. I've lived my life in the city. My kids love the city, but I am claiming um, mountain life. All right. Yeah. Love that. Thank you so much for everything. It was great talking. Yay. Thank you for tuning in, whether you listened to that the first time or this was your first time through. Again, go get the bold world. Go get born ready. Um, share these books with people that you know. I think it's an amazing book, especially Born Ready to Have on Hand to give to parents and kids as a gift. And um, like just, you know, it just touches me so much, this story. Go check it out. Go follow Jody Patterson. Of course, for all things me, you can find me at trishahuffman.com. I've also got yourjoyologist.com where you can find my products. You can download my daily inspiration app called Own Your Awesome. And make sure to get on the wait list for my upcoming group programs. Go to yourjoyologist.com backslash coaching, and you will see options there. You can also go to yourjoyaljust.com backslash courses for the group programs. All right. Thank you so much for spending time with me. Please leave a review. And if you do, screenshot it and send it to me at podcast at yourjoyologist.com, and I will send you a gift from my product line. For the last thought of the day, what are you claiming for yourself in this moment. Claim peace. Claim that you love yourself. Claim that you are who you are. What are you claiming?